Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to get together. Thank you uh, that we can put some of this health issues and restrictions and stuff behind us uh, and we can gather tonight because of health. And what a good thing it is to be healthy. Uh, thank you for protecting me and my family during the last couple of weeks. Um, God, I just pray that you would continue to do that and continue to see the cases go down so that we can move beyond the restrictions as a state and as a country uh, and get back to life as normal or whatever, uh, as close to normal as we can. Uh, God, I thank you for the direction that things are moving in, that we are getting close to finishing up the book of Exodus and the topic we are going to have tonight. God, I pray that we can see your son uh, through the pages of Exodus and through the tabernacle, which we are studying tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Exodus 25 through chapter 40, for the most part, is almost entirely focused on the tabernacle. Basically, what you'll see in those chapters is Moses is on the mountain. He's getting direction from God, and God tells Moses the exact, the exact instructions to build a place for worship, uh, for God to dwell among his people. And so it goes from that to a little bit of a mess with the people creating a golden calf, which we're not really going to get into. And then from that to the actual construction of the tabernacle. So it goes from the instructions to the construction and then the inspection on the construction is basically the rest of what the book of Exodus from 25 to 40 goes on. Uh, there's two chapters that focuses on something regarding worship in the temple, which is the high priest garments, which is what we'll talk about next week. And there's going to be some similarities. But the tabernacle, I think you'll be surprised, although maybe not because we talked about the tabernacle quite a bit when we did uh, our study in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So some of this is going to be repeat information uh, because there's two things that are specific about the tabernacle that are very interesting in that the tabernacle seems to create an image of the throne room of God in heaven, uh, which you see very clearly in Revelation. But the tabernacle is also very much a picture of Christ. And so let's open up to Exodus chapter 25. Uh, this is verses 8 and 9. This is God speaking to Moses. He says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me. So before this, he's basically telling Moses to offer a sacrifice, to cleanse himself and the nation of Israel, and then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So the point here, or the purpose of the tabernacle is stated in verse 8. It's to make a sanctuary where God can dwell with his people. The creator has a desire to dwell among his people. And he tells Moses to make sure that it's furnished exactly like the pattern I will show you. So the tabernacle is designed by God's instructions, not man. Now, later on, when we get into 2 Kings and into, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel and into 1 Kings, you'll see that the temple is 
created and built by Solomon based after the design of the tabernacle. But Solomon adds things that were not a part of the design of the tabernacle. So for instance, there's one golden lampstand in the tabernacle. There's like 10 in the temple because Solomon goes way above and beyond the design that was given by God. So this is the, this is the design that was given by God um, and Solomon goes to a different, a different level. Now, the point of the tabernacle is for God to dwell with his people. Even in that, you see a picture of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word dwelling, or made his dwelling, comes from the Greek word skenao, which means to live or camp in a tent. So you could literally translate that, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus tabernacled with the people. So the tabernacle, a place for God to dwell, you see a picture of Jesus dwelling among the people. So what we're going to do is focus on individual pieces of the furniture and parts of the tabernacle. And once we go through all of that, we're going to walk through the tabernacle after we've discussed each individual part as a whole to see how the ministry works. So we're going to start with the Ark of the Covenant. So the description of how to build the Ark is found in Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. It says this, have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its feet with the two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold and the ends of the cover, at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherub are to face each other, or the cherubim are to face each other, looking toward each other. Place the cover at the top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant of the law, I will meet with you and give you all my commandments for the Israelites. So, uh, if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's the picture that I used on the little handout. Um, but it's basically a box, and it looks like a golden box. And it's two feet high, about two feet deep, and about three feet wide. The bottom is made out of acacia wood. And acacia wood is uh, one of the rare trees that grows in the desert, um, in the Negev Desert, where they were traveling during their 40 years of wandering. Uh, and it happens to be, from what I understand, the only thorny wood that grows in that area. Um, and it's very likely the same wood 
that was used to uh, make the crown of thorns. Now the top was made purely of gold while the bottom was dipped and covered with gold. Um, so the whole thing looked gold. The top was one gold piece. Um, and gold typically represents royalty or the wealth of heaven. Uh, it was also one of the gifts given at Christ's birth. And the top, the gold piece, is called the mercy seat. And so what would happen is the mercy seat is the place that exists between the two cherubs or between the cherubim. And on the day of atonement, the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle. And he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat seven times because it was meant to be complete atonement for the people of Israel. Um, now, in between the cherub, in between the cherubim, there's nothing. It's just the mercy seat. There is no image of God because that's one of the Ten Commandments. Though this is the place that represents that where God would have sit because you cannot create an image of an uncreated being. The mercy seat, that's where the blood was sprinkled, and that would represent the forgiveness and a total atonement for the people, and that was done on the Day of Atonement. We'll do a session on the Day of Atonement when we get into the book of Leviticus. But it's very interesting, and you'll see very much the connection of Jesus. Now, this ark, where the bottom and the poles were made of acacia wood, same wood that was used for the crown of thorns, um, were dipped in gold, so on the outside, they represent the royalty or the wealth of heaven. They would carry the ark, and on top of it, just the mercy seat between the two cherubs. But inside of the ark, there were three things. Now, this far in the book of Exodus, it doesn't have all of the things mentioned yet. It just says that there will be the tablets. So the, ten, the two tablets that contain the Ten Commandments were inside the ark. Also, inside the ark of the covenant was the jar that was filled with the manna that was collected on the first day God provided manna back in Exodus 17. And also, which you find out later in the book of Numbers, Aaron's, a piece of Aaron's staff, a broken piece of Aaron's staff, was put in the Ark of the Covenant. So what does this say about the Ark and about its contents? It holds within it the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. It holds within it a jar of manna. This thing that is supposed to represent the presence of God holds within it the law, which Jesus fulfilled, a jar of manna, which represents the bread of life, which Jesus is. And it also holds within it Aaron's staff. Now, in Numbers 17 and 18, you see this story where there are some priests who are basically upset with the authority that Aaron has, uh, and they want his authority. And so they come to Moses, Moses talks to God, and they have this sort of argument uh, and decision where they lay their staffs down and Moses says, whose ever staff buds, that'll be the staff of the person who is given the authority of the high priest. Aaron's staff buds almond blossoms. Now this is a dead piece of wood detached from a tree. It's just a piece of wood that's dead and it out of the death brings forth life and almond blossoms and then in Numbers 18, it says that the high priest, which is Aaron, and this is his staff, the high priest will carry or take on the iniquity of the people because it's their role to prepare for the day of atonement. And so the fulfillment of the law, Jesus, the law is within the ark, the bread of life, 
and something that symbolizes death coming to life. And it comes from the person, the first high priest, who would take on the iniquity of the people. I hope you can see the picture of Jesus in the Ark of the Covenant. Now next, we move out of the Holy of Holies and into the holy place. Um, And the first thing we're going to look at is the table of showbread, which is, see the description for this in Exodus 25, 23 through 30. It says, make a table of acacia wood. Again, you see acacia wood. So I'm not going to address it again. You already heard what acacia wood is. Two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high, which is about three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and two and a quarter feet high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Also make around it a rim, a hand breadth, or about three inches. So there's a rim of about three inches around the top of the table. And put a gold molding on the rim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and carry the table with them. And make its plates and dishes of pure gold, as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. So, you have, as you enter the Holy of Holies on your right-hand side, would be the table, or the holy place, not the Holy of Holies. The holy place, you'd have this table that's made out of acacia wood, just like the ark, inlaid with gold, and there's a gold rim around it, and then all of the instruments on top are also made of pure gold. And what would be on top of the table are 12 loaves of bread. And then in the glasses, in the gold cups, would be wine for a liquid offering, as well as some frankincense that would go with the wine offering. So what is this? You see a table with 12 pieces of bread and wine. This very much to me looks like communion. And as much as it looks like communion, Leviticus chapter 24 also says that this is the ongoing expression of an eternal covenant with Israel. So the table of showbread not only foreshadowed for us in the new covenant what a relationship with the Savior would look like, it also stood for an eternal covenant with the nation of Israel, meaning the church is not new Israel. Israel has an eternal covenant with God that will always last. So again, that puts aside the idea of replacement theology. Now the the bread, what does the bread represent? It's God's provision, much like the manna in Exodus chapter 17. God provided for the needs of the people. And this was meant to be before God every day. Interesting thing about the bread, there's 12 loaves, one for each tribe in Israel. Also, Jesus had 12 disciples. And another interesting thing is in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, there are 12 baskets of leftovers. So there's a big connection here because who is Jesus? In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And wine often represents the blood. And then frankincense is also a part of the wine offering, which was another one of the gifts at Christ's birth. So again, I hope you see the picture of Jesus here on the inner portion in the holy place of the tabernacle with the table of showbread. 
Up next is the lampstand. This might be my favorite one. Um, the golden lampstand. The description is Exodus 25, 31 through 40. It says, make a lampstand of pure gold. So this is all gold. No wood. This is all pure, completely gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch. And the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand, there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, a third under the third pair, Six branches in all, the buds and the branches are all, or shall all be one piece with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. Then make it seven lamps and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent, or about 75 pounds of pure gold, is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So you have this golden lamp with a center stick and then three branches coming out of each side of the center, making seven lights. Uh, So it looks like a menorah minus two branches. So it has seven total lamps. Um, Also also the other difference is with a menorah, the center candle is higher than the others. Um, But that's for a different purpose. Now this whole thing is completely made out of pure gold. It's also hammered and beaten into shape, which for me makes me think of Isaiah 53 and the the prophecy that Jesus would be beaten and whipped um, for our transgressions. And again, this is the second time we see almonds come up again. Almonds are all over the lampstand. So it's supposed to look like buds and flowers and have this sort of natural look to the lampstand, and they use almonds again. So what is unique about almonds? Almonds blossom in January, in the dead of winter. So also, out of the deadest time of year, springs forth life. Um, So you can look at that as death from life or as the first fruits, because it's the first thing to blossom and bloom. Another interesting piece of this is that the olives that they used to create the olive oil, what they had to do were beat and crush the olives to make the olive oil for the lamp. And if you didn't know, one of the, this scene that that makes me think of is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his, his arrest that led to his first trial and multiple trials that led to his crucifixion. And the Garden of Gethsemane actually means Garden of the Olive Press. And so there is some conjecture from some teachers who have pointed out that maybe this is talking about, because Jesus said that he had to go through this and it was better for him to leave so that we could receive the helper, that Jesus getting beaten and crushed paved the way for the Holy Spirit to come because oil is representative of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. So Jesus was arrested in the Garden of the Olive Press right before he was beaten and crushed for our transgressions. And so the picture should be pretty clear. The other thing about the 
lampstand is it was the only light source in the tabernacle. Now, in the Holy of Holies, there's no light source at all other than perhaps the glory of God or some residual light coming through the veil from the lampstand. But the lampstand was the only source of light in the holy place, um, and it would be extremely dark in there if it was not lit. It had to be lit at all times. They were never allowed to let the light go out. And so this is the light source, and it has seven lamps, meaning complete. So it's a complete light source for the holy place, and it must always remain lit. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells us that he is the light of the world. And then he tells his disciples later that they are to be the light of the world, which also brings the, he was beaten and crushed. The Holy Spirit came upon the church to be the light of the world, to replace him during his ascension. Also in Revelation chapter 21, you see that Jesus becomes the light source for the new heaven and new earth for the whole world. Jesus becomes the light source and replaces the sun. Um, so I think there are multiple applications to Jesus' first and second coming of what the lampstand represents. But mostly, beaten and crushed into shape. The olives that created the oil were beaten and crushed. Jesus prayed in the garden of the olive press, and Jesus is the light of the world. And almond blossoms out of death comes life. And the last piece of furniture on the inner portion of uh, the holy place of the inner portion of the tabernacle is the altar of incense. Now for this, we're gonna have to skip ahead a few chapters to Exodus 30. And the description for the altar of incense is uh, verses one through 10. Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long and a cubit wide, two cubits high. So about one and a half feet long and wide and three feet high. It's horns of one piece with it. So it's one solid piece. Overlay the top and all sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two rings for the altar below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides. Hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Again, acacia wood covered in gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law before the atonement cover. That is over the tablets of the covenant law where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight, so incense will burn regularly before the Lord for generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering. Do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. What on earth is this thing and what does it represent? So again, it's made of acacia wood covered in gold, just like the ark, just like the table of showbread. And it represents the prayers ascending to heaven. You see a picture of this in Revelation chapter five and in Psalm 141. The idea is that the incense is a pleasing aroma and the aroma and the smoke lifting up and also filling the Holy of Holies because this was right in front of the curtain that led to the Holy of Holies, that that smell would be a pleasing scent to the Lord and it represents the prayers of the saints. And the incense was lit by a coal from the brazen altar. So where the sacrifices were committed, the coals where the sacrifices were committed and the blood would be dripped on, one of those coals would light the incense. So 
the prayers are able to ascend to heaven because they've been cleansed by the sacrifice is the picture that you see there. Um, and the other thing is, this is the closest piece of furniture to the Holy of Holies. The ark is in the Holy of Holies, but this is the closest piece of furniture that's used in the tabernacle service to the Holy of Holies without being in it. And it represents the prayers of the saints. And it's the prayers that have been covered by a sacrifice. So the closest we can get to communing with God and in his presence seems to be in prayer if those prayers are covered by a sacrifice. Now we move outside of the inner court and we're now looking at a piece of furniture called the bronze laver. So everything on the inside was made of either pure gold or acacia wood and then covered with gold. All in the inner part of the tabernacle. Now we're on the outer portion. In the outer portion, you see that the pieces of furniture are made with bronze and that's very different. One of the reasons... Gold also represents purity. Bronze represents judgment. And the bronze is on the outside portion of the tabernacle. And so where judgment is placed to cleanse people, that is done before you can enter the holy place. So I hope you see that picture of being cleansed before you go to the presence of God. So bronze laver, you see it. Uh, Chapter 30, verses 17 through 21, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. They had to wash themselves at the bronze laver before they could enter the holy place. If they didn't wash themselves, they could die in the presence of God because they would be unclean. They wouldn't be pure. So they had to be purified and cleansed before they entered the holy place. So the bronze laver is all about sanctification or cleansing. Only the priests could go there and they, would, um, they had to be clean before going into the holy place, before going into God's presence. Now, there's a picture of this in the New Testament that I think is really beautiful. In John chapter 13, Jesus pours water into a basin and washes his disciples' feet because he is the humble servant He's also a high priest, and he's cleansing his followers. Um, another interesting piece about the bronze laver is there's very specific measurements for every piece of furniture from the altar to the lampstand to the table of showbread, the Ark of the Covenant, all very specific, but there's no size requirements for the bronze laver. We don't really know how big or small it was. And some have pointed out that the, the fact that there's no measurement for the bronze laver gives us a New Testament understanding that there's no limit to God's cleansing power because there's no measurement given. But the idea is, once the sacrifice has been made, the blood on your hands would be washed off at the bronze laver and the dirt on your feet would be washed off at the bronze laver so that you could be clean after the sacrifice 
heading into God's presence. I think the picture of Jesus is very clear in the bronze laver. Now, the other thing that's maybe my favorite thing about the bronze laver comes from the book of Revelation because there's a confusing line in Revelation 5 about a sea of glass. You're like, what the heck is a sea of glass sitting before a throne with rainbows and emeralds around it? What on earth does that mean? Well, if you start looking at the picture that's painted in Revelation in association with the book of Ezekiel and the picture of Isaiah when he's in the temple and the coal touches his lips. And this description here in Exodus, you see that the heavenly throne room and the heavenly realm looks a lot, where God dwells in heaven looks a lot like the tabernacle. And so the sea of glass is likely the bronze laver in the temple in heaven, but it's solid because there's no need for cleansing in heaven. You can't dive into it because you don't need to be clean if you're there. The atoning work has already been accomplished. Um, So that's probably my favorite thing about the bronze laver. And last, in terms of pieces of furniture, the brazen altar. So we head back a little bit to Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, to get the picture of this being built. It says, build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits, or four and a half feet high. It's to be square, five cubits long, five cubits wide, about seven and a half feet. Uh, Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns of the altar are of one piece and overlay with bronze. Make all of its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put under the ledge of the altar so that it's halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the ring so they will be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. So again, acacia wood, but this time it's covered in bronze, which is a symbol of judgment. Now, if you noticed, on every piece of furniture, there are these rings and poles to be inserted through. That's because they were wandering in the desert. So God gave them instructions so that they could travel with this thing as they traveled to the promised land and wandered around in the desert. They could take their place of worship and travel with it, which is ingenious. The symbol of judgment, and so a sacrifice was placed on the altar, um, which was to be judged in your place. What happened is you would go uh, into the altar, or well, first you have to go through the gate, but we'll get there in a second. And you go before, you bring your, your clean animal to the altar, and the priest would take it, sacrifice it, cut it up, and then put the meat on the altar and burn it. But before the priest took the animal to cut it, you would have to place your hand on the head of the animal. And that represented, A, you acknowledging that this animal, this innocent thing, was taking away your sin. And also that this was the transference, which again happened at a place made of acacia wood with a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. You place your hand on the head of the animal. And then the blood that dripped from the coals would be the thing that lit the fire in the altar of incense. The fire also had to be remained lit at all times. This is God's judgment, right? The bronze, there's a sacrifice happening. Fire is raining down on this this sacrifice. This is God's judgment to a core. 
and Jesus is the sacrifice, right? He took on the wrath of God so that we didn't have to experience the wrath of God. This is a picture of our conversion. Something else was sacrificed on our behalf and taking the punishment and God's judgment of our sin so that we could be cleansed and enter the presence of God. Now, we're running low on time, so I'm not gonna read all of the verses, but uh, Exodus 27, nine through 19, is a description of the courtyard. This is basically the outer portion and what it's enclosed with. So there is a 75 foot wide rectangle and 150 feet long rectangle. So 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. And only on the east side of this outer rim of the tabernacle of this outer court, there's a 30 foot wide gate where the fabric, instead of being white linen, is dyed red, purple, and blue. And so the whole outer court is white linen, except for one small piece, this 30-foot wide gate on the east side, which is the only entrance point to the tabernacle worship. And it is dyed red, blue, and purple. Some have pointed out that this might be that the white linen represents purity, but the gate is dyed red for blood, purple for royalty, and blue for heaven, which is a picture of all things that describe Jesus. And there's only one gate, there's only one entrance, and it's made out of the same material. It was originally white, but dyed these colors. So why is this important? Jesus says in John 10, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the good shepherd. And Jesus is the one who lays down his life. Before we do a walkthrough, there's one more thing. The inner portion and its coverings. So there's a fence that's 70, you know, a rectangle that's 75 feet wide and 105 feet long. But inside of that is a closed portion that's covered so it can, you can't see it from the outside. You can only enter it. And inside of that, this, this closed portion, the whole thing is 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. Inside of that, there are two rooms and they are separated by a veil. This veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The holy place was 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. The Holy of Holies was 15 feet wide, 15 feet long, and 15 feet high. It was a perfect cube, much like the description of New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, in uh, Revelation 22 and 23. Now, the veil separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies contained the presence of God. God's presence was separated. Even though God was dwelling among his people in the tabernacle, his presence was separated by the veil. And the veil happened to be torn at Jesus' crucifixion, meaning that God's presence was no longer separated from the people in any capacity. You see that in Matthew 27, 51, the veil was torn at Jesus' crucifixion. But the Holy of Holies and the holy place were what was inside of the covered area. And that's what the veil represented, the separation of us to God even while he was dwelling in the tabernacle. And that went away at the crucifixion. 
from the top to bottom and also there was no seam. In order to get into the Holy of Holies, you had to crawl under the curtain. There's no, no place to separate. So the high priest had to crawl under the curtain with a rope on his ankle once a year to do the Day of Atonement. I like that. I'm going to say that so that people can hear that on the recording. Just so, you know, Dan gave us the note point that the tearing of the veil from top to bottom um, can be considered a, a representation of God reaching down to man instead of us getting up to him through Jesus' sacrifice. Now, the other part of this are the outer coverings. There were four coverings that overlaid the holy of holies and the holy place. And the first layer was linen, which is white linen, purity, but it was also dyed the same as the gate with purple, red, and blue. So the entrance to the gate of, to the tabernacle, the only way to get into the presence, there's only one way, only one gate, Jesus is the way. That same dye is the same thing that's used on the first layer of linen. And it was dyed blue, purple, and red. Now the next layer over top of it is goat skin. And goat skin is often representative of sin. Because on the Day of Atonement, you would sacrifice a lamb, but then there would also be a scapegoat that represented the sin of the people. Um, and you would send off the scapegoat into the wilderness to never be seen again and hope that you would never see him again because he represented sin. Um, so goat skin, after the layer of linen, there's a separation. Um, and now there's goat skin that represents sin. Now over top of the goat skin was ram skin that was dyed red. Now, red is often a symbol of blood and sacrifice. And the ram is a very interesting choice because the ram was used for guilt offering. And in Genesis 22, when we talked about the sacrifice that uh, when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, a ram was presented for them in place of Isaac, which was very much a picture of Jesus, a ram skin covering. And then the outer covering, the last covering was badger skin or potentially seal skin, um, this leathery brown ugly material on the outside, um, often the same material used for sandals. Um, and that was the outer covering. So if you were looking at the tabernacle from the outside, now inside of the holy place, it was all gold. Everything looked beautiful. And the, the roof would have been red, blue, and, and purple dye, and everything else would have been gold. So it would have looked beautiful, but you couldn't see it from the outside. You would see this ugly brown leathery thing. And that's what you're like, these people are worshiping in this leather tent and it looked ugly. Well, what does Isaiah 53 tell us? Verse two says there was no beauty in the savior, nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. But what a work he does on the inside, right? And so from the outside, you have this ugly looking thing, but inside, absolutely beautiful. So this is, those are all of the instruments and that's the picture of the tabernacle. Now, let's take a quick tour through the tabernacle. If you were a Jewish man or woman living at this time, you would walk up to the gate on the east side only one entrance, only one way to get in. 
and you would have to bring with you a clean animal, a, an, a spotless sacrifice. And the priest would inspect the animal, and if it was spotless, they would let you in through the gate. So only a spotless sacrifice will get you through the gate. And you would take that animal to the, the bronze laver where the priest would do his work. You would lay your hand on the animal's head, transferring the sin onto that animal. And the priest would basically butcher the animal and put the meat in the bronze laver where the blood would drip on the coals, cleansing you and being the atoning sacrifice for your sin. Then the priest would take on the work, your iniquity. And he would go after the sacrifice and he would put blood on the four horns of the altar and sprinkle it on the four horns of the altar to represent God's mercy. Because the four horns were the place where if you got caught doing something, wrong. You could run to the tabernacle, and if you got to the horns, you could ask for mercy. This was the place for God's mercy. Blood was put on those four horns, and then the, the priest with the blood on his hands would go and do the work for you, and he would become clean at the bronze laver so that he could go and enter God's presence. He would take a coal from the altar where the blood was set poured on from the sacrifice so that your prayers can get to heaven in the altar of incense. So you see the conversion at the altar. You see the sanctification and the cleansing at the bronze laver. And you walk into the holy place where on the outside there's nothing attractive about it, but on the inside it's pure gold and red, blue, and purple dyed linen above you. And you see the tool to access heaven through the blood sacrifice attached to the coal on the altar of incense. You see the light of the world on your left and communion table on your right. The holy place where you commune with God, break bread, pray and talk and experience the light of the world. And imagine how it would smell this is gold place lit up. You have olive oil, pure olive oil burning to your left. Fresh baked bread and wine to your right. Incense burning in front of you and barbecue behind you. And then a veil. But on this side of Jesus' sacrifice, the veil is torn. There is no separation between you and the presence of God. Where the ark sits, and on top of it, the mercy seat, where blood is sprinkled for the atonement of sins. The tabernacle is without a doubt a very clear picture of Christ, his work of atonement, and sacrifice for our sin. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the book of Exodus. Thank you for so clearly showing us history that points to our future and points to our Savior so that we can know with confidence Jesus is Lord and I can be forgiven through his atoning sacrifice. He is the gate. I can only get in through him. 
he is also the sacrifice. His blood has atoned my sins. And he is also the high priest who takes on my iniquity so that my prayers can go before heaven cleansed and be a pleasing aroma to you. God, help us to remember this and to love you more because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.